Noah's Ark in the flood. Is that Noah's Ark? The book I got that out of said that was Noah's Ark. Now, are there any problems with that Noah's Ark? Okay, the holes are the thing that I'm, you know, the woodpecker has been very busy, right? There's a lot of holes and everything. In a big storm, what's going to happen to this ark? Actually, if in calm, what's going to happen to this ark? This bad boy's going down. It does have the giraffe sticking out the top. That's the one thing it's got going for it, right? I mean, is that Noah's ark? Of course not. Is that Noah's ark? Well, the giraffes are sticking out the top. But I don't think that's Noah's Ark. I don't think Noah's Ark had a monkey on the porthole. Maybe I'm just a skeptic. I don't believe that. Now, was Noah's Ark a big boat or a little boat? That's a big boat. And it even says Noah's Ark. Did Noah's Ark have animals looking out the sides? Anything looking out of Noah's Ark doesn't make any sense to me. If you look out of Noah's Ark, what are you going to see? Water. After you've seen that two or three times, you've seen it, right? How did Noah know how to build the boat? He had to get information from somewhere. How did he know how to build it? God told him. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. What's a cubit? Average is about 18 inches. Elbow, tip of the fingers, 16.4 to roughly 20, almost 21 inches. A cubit, would you say 18 inches, nice round number. What about something like that? Folks, no giraffe is going to stick out the top of that boat. Now, this is what you're going to see when you come to the Ark Encounter. This is the whole form that we're going to use for the Ark Encounter project. Because what we found in our research is we've looked into it, cultures that were seagoing cultures or shipbuilding cultures that lived you know, very soon after the flood very frequently had hull forms like this. You know, had the big vein on the back. And what we found is this particular hull form is much more stable in high winds and high waves than this form. Now, this is the way we used to illustrate the Ark. Now, could the Ark have looked like that? Now, this is a cutaway, I realize, but could the Ark have looked like that? Sure. We don't absolutely know. We know certain things about the ark. So if you prefer to imagine or th- this is the way you understand the ark, I have no problem with that. This is not quite as stable as this form, but nonetheless, there are certain things we don't know. So again, when you come to see the ark encounter, there are going to be certain areas where there's going to be a certain amount of artistic license we have to take because we don't know everything. But the one thing we're absolutely trying to do, if and we've got multiple editors and content people looking at everything we do, we're doing our level best to never, ever, ever, ever contradict Scripture in any way. But sometimes you just have to sort of fill in the blanks. So anyway, this is the, the whole form we're going to have. It's a humongous boat. When you go to the Ark Encounter area, the, 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 the site, and you stand there and you stand on one end and look and see how far it is, it is unimaginable. You just kind of just, it overwhelms you to think how big that boat was. It was not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. But nonetheless, whichever whole you know, form you like, I'm not going to argue the point as long as we start with the Word of God. Facts about Noah's Ark, 437 to 510 feet long, 73 to 85 feet wide, 44 to 53 feet high. It was a floating warehouse. It's a football field and a half long. It's twice as long as a 747. It was huge. You know, the Ark had three decks. Now, I always ask this question. If you're Noah and his family, which deck you want to live on? 
Everybody says the top. Now, to me, that presents a number of problems. Wouldn't you be going up and down the steps a lot to get to the animals and stuff? I mean, wouldn't you want to live like under the hippopotamuses and elephants? No? Why, why, would that, why is that such a problem? Why would you not want to live under the hippopotamuses and elephants? Odor, you know, hygiene, whatever. Which actually leads into the most... I know this is church. And I know you, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be delicate here, but would anybody like to guess what the most frequently asked question that I get about Noah's Ark is? That was very graciously put. What do they do with the poop? Okay. And I know you don't hear poop from the pulpit very often. I apologize, brother. But the thing is, what do you do? And the thing is, that's a legitimate question. Because guess what? If you're knowing his family, you want to get that stuff off the boat, right? I mean, after that long a period of time, that's, you know, think about it. We do have some answers to that. And again, they're just models. But we do have a way to get the material off the boat. And the way that we envision they got it off the boat involves a lot of water. Where would they get a lot of water? <laughs> Everywhere, right? So we got answers to this stuff. Okay, so then you want to live on the top deck. Genesis 6.14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. There were actually rooms in Noah's ark. And I can prove it. Here's an actual photograph from Noah's ark. <laughs> hey, don't laugh so far. I'm the only person who hasn't claimed to have found it. You know, we've cataloged something like 75 or 76 different supposed ark sightings. Not a single one's ever been verified. Not a single one could, you know, when you, people go back and try to find it, it's never found. Ark has not been found. But God's word says there were rooms in the ark. Now, it makes sense to me. I mean, I know God's word says they're there. But frankly, it makes sense to me that there would be rooms in the ark. I mean, does that make sense to everybody? I mean, would you understand why there would be, you know, if you go to farms or stables, places where they raise animals, there are very often stalls or cribs or pens or cages, you know, to keep animals. Would it make sense that there would be rooms in Noah's Ark? I mean, is everybody okay with that? I mean, obviously God's word says, but to me that kind of makes sense. Now, having said that, I'm going to ask the next question. And I'm absolutely counting on somebody giving me the wrong answer. Because everywhere I've ever been, somebody gives me the wrong answer. Now, if you're the person who gives me the wrong answer, do not be embarrassed. You've just joined a very non-exclusive club. Just realize you're braver than the other 95% of cowards in this room who had the same question but weren't brave enough to give me the answer. Okay, there were rooms in Noah's Ark. Why would you need rooms in Noah's Ark? I like that. That's good. You can leave now, but that's good. Yeah. Do what? Okay, why? Okay, why would you want to separate the animals? Thank you. That's the wrong answer. I was getting nervous. That's what everybody says to keep the animals from eating each other. Now, question. Would the animals on Noah's Ark be eating each other? No. If the animals on Noah's Ark were eating each other, how many animals would get off the Ark? One. And it would be really fat because it would have eaten everything else. I submit that the animals on Noah's Ark were not eating each other. Remember, in the beginning, God gave man and the animals what to eat? 
plants. Now there was the fall and we know animals became carnivorous. We're not sure when man became, you started eating meat. We're not giving the biblical okay to eat meat till after the flood. We don't know if part of man's rebellion was eating meat before. We don't know. Now did, did God, did uh, Noah have to go out and collect all the animals? No. Had to get them. God brought them. to. So I'm going to submit to you that God led animals to Noah that were still obeying his directive, that were still eating plants only. Because after all, it says Noah took two of every kind of land animal, seven of some on the ark, right? Did it say take two of every kind of land animal, seven of some, and some sheep to feed the T-Rex? I mean, if the animals were a danger to one another or a danger to Noah and his family, you got a problem. Because remember, if the T-Rex was dangerous, who's Noah going to send to feed it? You see, his mother-in-law's not on the boat. <laughs> Go feed the animal. If it doesn't come back, I'll explain it to your mom. I mean, think about it. No, I submit that the animals on the ark were still vegetarian. They were not a danger to Noah and his family. They were not a danger to each other. They were still eating plants. Now, had some animals become carnivorous at the time of the flood? Yeah. Can anybody prove their answer? There is, an an- there, there is a way to prove it. Fossils. In the fossil record, you have fossils of animals that have parts of other creatures in their tummy. And we would, we would hold that these, fossils, these particular fossils are in flood sediment. So these creatures would have been alive at the time of the flood. Some animals had become carnivorous. I'm submitting that the animals on the ark remain vegetarian. They weren't eating each other. They weren't a danger to Noah and his family. Okay, getting back to your answer, were the rooms to separate the animals? I think absolutely, but not to keep them from eating each other. I think it makes sense to separate the animals to kind of break down the workload because certain animals may eat certain types of plants. You know, if you're going to go to the storeroom and bring out certain types of plants, it'd be easier to bring out these plants to feed these animals. I think just to, to divide just, just the, the, the day-to-day routine of caring for the animals. I think that uh, some of the animals on the ark very likely were hibernating for at least part of the voyage. So you're going to keep those animals separated from the others, not to keep them from being eating, eaten, but just to keep them from being disturbed. Plus, there's another reason that rooms in the ark make sense that a lot of folks don't think about. What about the stability of the structure itself? You've got just all the framing and all the work inside the ark. It's going to keep the ark from twisting and turning and torquing. So lots of reasons to have rooms in the ark. But the first thing people think about is to keep the animals from eating each other. And that's really not the issue. This is a photograph of the inside of one of the ark models we have at the museum. This is one of our smaller models in our ark room. Now, do we know the ark looked like that on the inside? No, no way to know. But we've got people who've worked with us for years. They're structural and mechanical engineers who've studied ancient ships and ancient structures to help us understand how you could build a wooden you know, structure you know, to these dimensions that would be stable and wouldn't break apart and wouldn't torque. And we have lots of different models and lots of data that we've collected and, and models that we've used over the years just to show people we do have answers to this. This is just one possibility. Now, when people think about Noah's Ark, the first thing most people think about are the animals. The thing I think about are those poor people. How many people would have liked to have been on Noah's Ark? I would have liked to be on Noah's Ark for about three days. You know, after that, the, the fun part of that would have worn off, right? I mean, that would be kind of an adventure. After that, that would have got really tiresome. But the thing is, there's no place to go. You can't just pull over and, at the rest stop. There, that's it. Until the water recedes, so you're on there with the birds flying around trying to, you know, take care of the family and try to keep up with the animals. That would have gotten really old. The total volume of the vessel was 1,400,000 cubic feet, roughly the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. It's a floating warehouse. It's not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. Till 1884, the Ark was the biggest ship ever built. 
We don't have a reliable historical record of a ship bigger than the Ark before 1884. Since that time, we've got ships many times the size of the Ark. The thing that lots of people don't understand or realize is a lot of our big cargo ships and tankers and things, if you look at the, at the length and width and height, the proportions of it are very similar to the proportions given for the Ark, even though it's bigger. It's a very stable hull configuration. It was one half the length of the Queen Mary. And they've actually done what they call hydrodynamic studies on models of different hulls, all sorts of different hull configurations. And these engineers have, have subjected these things to currents and winds and waves and all that. And you know what the engineers have determined? The Ark was more than capable of completing the voyage for which it was intended. Now, how do you already know the Ark completed its voyage? How do you know that? Because we're here. Yeah, because when I got up this morning and looked in the mirror, I saw somebody, right? See, it's not hard. It's a huge boat. It is not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. That toy boat, the first big wave that hits it, those giraffes better hope evolution's true. And it better happen really fast because if they don't get gills in the next 12 seconds, they're in trouble. Because last time I checked, giraffes don't breathe underwater. This is a problem. And again, if you accept a local flood, you got a huge problem. There's no hull in the world that's going to survive more than about another three minutes. This bad boy's going down. And again, we talked about this a little bit this morning. This is one of the questions I get from the, from the skeptics all the time. Hey, how'd you get all the animals on the ark? Was there room for all the animals? More than enough room. People have asked me, is it time to get all the millions of, millions of varieties of creatures? There's no way you get millions of animals on Noah's ark. You don't need millions of animals. You need two of every kind, seven of some. Tell me, how many varieties of dogs are there? I mean, every time I Google it, I get a different answer. I'm tired. I get answers anywhere from like 160 some odd to around 240. I just, I just, I just tell people it's a bunch. How many dogs are on the ark? Two. How many kinds of cats are there? Yeah, too many. I get it. How many cats on the ark? Two. You know, so the thing is, how do you start off with two dogs and you get all these different varieties of dogs? It's not that difficult. But when you look at all the different varieties of creatures, the absolute worst case number that we've used in the past is 16 to 18,000 individual animals. In our research for the Ark Encounter, what we're finding is there are far fewer kinds of animals than we originally thought. When you look at all the data that's been accumulated over time and you look at you know, whether creatures can interbreed, we would argue if creatures could interbreed, they're of the same kind, that kind of thing. There are far fewer kinds of animals than we originally thought. So there probably only going to be more like three to 5,000 animals on the Ark. But you had how many dogs on the Ark? Two dogs. Now they get off the Ark and they do what? They reproduce. Don't overthink this. And if they reproduce, their offspring are what? Some of you don't sound too sure. When dogs reproduce, they have dogs. And when these dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And when those dogs reproduce, their offspring are what? And this goes on and on and on, right? Then you have what? Lots of dogs. Is this evolution? No, it's just what? Dogs. So how do you start off with two dogs? You get all these different varieties of dogs. Well, it's really simple. It's called natural selection. <gasps> you can't say natural selection. Christians don't believe in natural selection. Christians don't believe in science. That's evolution, isn't it? Not at all. Natural selection was first described as a concept by a creationist 30 years before Darwin. Darwin actually had this man's writing in his own library. His name was Edward Blythe. Natural selection is a process you can see in nature where certain physical characteristics give creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. 
Let's just say <clears throat> the ark lands, the dog's off, and you got these lots of dogs. And this group of dogs says, man, it's getting crowded around here. I want to go somewhere else. And those, that group of dogs wander north. They do better if they have what, long fur or short fur? What happens if they have short fur? This is not rocket science. They get cold, right? What if a group of dogs say, look, it's cold that way. I don't want to go north. I want to go to the beach. They do better. They go south. They do better if they have what, long fur or short fur? What happens if they have long fur? <laughs> they get hot and they don't reproduce as well. What happens if a group of dogs wander to the forest? They do better if they have light-colored fur or dark-colored fur. What happens if they have light-colored fur? They get eaten and they can't sneak up on anything. See, this is not hard. Think of a polar bear in the Smokies, right? I mean, you get the concept? Not going to last. Polar bears do better in the Arctic. There are physical characteristics that give creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. And over many generations, those more desirable characteristics are passed along. They're propagated more efficiently. Now, does it work like this? These dogs get together and say, honey, we're going to move to the forest. Now, we need to start having puppies that have short legs, pointed ears, and dark fur. That's the way it works. Nope, you get what you get. Shuffle the car, shuffle the DNA, whatever offspring you get. But those that have the, the more desirable characteristics tend to propagate those, those traits to subsequent generations more efficiently. So over time, you have creatures that adapt to different environments. So God put the original, put in the original created kind, he put the maximum amount of genetic variability, knowing these creatures are going to have to adapt to different environments in a fallen, cursed world. This is not hard. You start off with two dogs, you can easily get all the different varieties of dogs or cats or cows that we see in our world. The median size of the animals would have been about the size of a rat. Only 10% or so of the animals on the ark would have been larger than a sheep. Most animals aren't very big. One railroad car holds 240 sheep, so the ark could hold 125,280 sheep. Using one deck, you can hold 40,000 animals. Math question, is 18,000 less than 40,000? So the worst case maximal number that we've used would take up half of one deck of the ark. Now that's assuming that all the animals were the size of sheep and only 10% would have been that big. The vast majority of these creatures would have been far smaller than sheep. Now working with the numbers we're working with now, three to 5,000, you've got many, many more square feet to deal with. You, you, you've got much more deck space. There's plenty of room on the ark. See, when I think about the ark these days, I don't go, Lord, how'd you get all the animals on it? My question is, why'd you make it so big? There's plenty of room. See, the rest of the room could be used for food and supplies and shelter and living space for the family. So this is not a hard question when you stop and think it through. The next question is one that trips up lots of people. Were there dinosaurs on the ark? That presents some problems. If there were dinosaurs on the ark, my first question is, how do you get them through the door? Some dinosaurs are 135 feet long. So what do you do? Do you like butter their head and push? I mean, how do you do that? You like shove them. And, and once you get them through the door, you got to get them back off. See, there's a problem. So we'll get back to the logistics in a minute. But see, if you're going to tell me there are dinosaurs on the ark, I'm going to say I'm a little skeptical. we got some issues to overcome. But let's go back to our first question before we go any further. Were there dinosaurs on the ark? Yes or no? How do you know that? You weren't there. Bible gives us the answer. Were the land animals made on day six of creation week? Yes. Are dinosaurs land animals? Yes. Did Noah take two of every kind of land animal, seven of some, on board the ark? 
Were there dinosaurs on the ark? Not hard. And we would argue that there are only about 50 kinds of dinosaurs. Now, there's a lot of variation. If you look at all the different variations within, say, the Triceratops kind, that's where you get all the, a lot of the different uh, you know, varieties of dinosaurs you see in the atlases. But I will tell you this. If you go to, these, go to the library and you see these big books, you know, the dinosaur atlas has got these pages and pages and pages of all these dinosaurs. What, what even the secular paleontologists will tell you in the last few years, they've been very concerned that people have been a little overzealous in naming dinosaurs. You know, somebody will go out and dig up a fossil or something. They want to be able to name it and write all about it. So in a lot of cases, what they've started to find is that if you look up different varieties of dinosaurs, sometimes, you know, this dinosaur and this dinosaur and this dinosaur are all the same dinosaur. They're just different stages in development. But people have just named them differently because of that urge to name dinosaurs. I mean, I'll be honest. If I go out in the backyard next week and I'm digging a barbecue pit and I find a dinosaur, I really want to call it the Tommyosaurus. I mean, I think that'd be really cool. So, but we've got to be a little bit over. But even like Jack Horner, who was the one of the consultants for the movie Jurassic Park, wrote a paper a couple years ago saying, we got to really sort of rethink how we've named them because there aren't that many kinds of dinosaurs. So there were dinosaurs on the ark. The question is, how did he get them through the door? Answer, it really wasn't a problem. How did dinosaurs reproduce? How do you know that? We have no live dinosaurs around today to watch them reproduce. How do you know that? We found fossil dinosaur eggs. What do you find inside these eggs? You find fossilized baby dinosaurs. You know, fossilized triceratops and fossilized T-Rex. How big is a T-Rex egg? About the size of a football. Had a kid a few months later, it's about the size of a Volkswagen, which would have been really interesting to watch that creature lay that egg. And the folks at Waffle House would have been really excited because one egg, we'd be eating omelets from now on. I mean, that'd be really cool. But the thing is, the T-Rex egg's about the size of a football. So when a T-Rex is born, how big is it? It's not, is it? So before you have a big Stegosaurus, you got a what? Little Stegosaurus. Now, what were these creatures supposed to do when the ark landed? They're supposed to really, they're supposed to make more dinosaurs, right? So is God going to lead fully grown dinosaurs to Noah, creatures that are far into their reproductive years or young or adolescents are just getting ready to enter their reproductive age where they have many, many life cycles left to reproduce? I would argue that God would lead the adolescents. Now, we don't know how big a T-Rex would have been before it was able to start laying eggs, but based on how we understand reptiles in our world today, you know, an alligator didn't have to be 15 feet long before it started laying eggs. This is not hard when you think it through. Now, the ark was a type of what? What did the ark represent? Salvation. The ark was a type of Christ. For people in that day, the ark was their means of escape, if you will. God provided for them an ark of wood. Anybody who went through that door was saved. Who closed that door? For us in our day and age, God provides for us an ark of salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. Does he turn anybody away? If you close your eyes in death, you haven't accepted that free gift of salvation. It's too late. The ark is a type of salvation. It represents salvation. The ark is not a toy boat with a giraffe sticking out the top. And again, I hope in a couple of years, you know, a year and a half or so, you'll be able to come to the Ark Encounter Project. And we're going to answer lots and lots and lots of these questions for you. Now, why was the Ark necessary? What was the problem? Well, this planet was about to be covered by water. And that presents a problem to a lot of scientists. They say there really is no reason to think this planet's ever been covered by water. Actually, there's every reason to think that. The same day where the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. I'm going to give you the sort of simple, basic flood model. 
Now, if you, if you take the surface of the earth and you smooth it down to like a billiard ball or a ping pong ball, something nice and smooth, you'll have a depth of water on the surface of the earth for roughly two miles. Can you drown in two miles of water? Yep, without even trying. It's not a problem. Two miles of water, you can drown. Now, we would also argue that in the pre-flood world that there was one land mass. And this is still an area of a lot of discussion. Because the Bible says the water was gathered together in one place. So it makes sense that there would be one land mass. But there's a lot of discussion about the shape of that land mass. You know, how much of the earth was land versus water in the pre-flood world. Those are things we just can't know. But we would argue that there was a landmass, that water was together in one place. And then what happened? The great fountains of the deep start breaking through. And you got all this water coming up. And as the water comes up through the great fountains of the deep, you have all these erosion surfaces. So you have an enormous amount of sediment. You got all these particles put in the air. And what happens is, is these plates get pushed apart and they start moving. And when things start moving apart, sometimes things on the other side, they start banging together, right? Things get pushed apart, things bang together. You have subduction layers. You have folding of, of, of these plates. You have mountains that get pushed up. Basically, the entire surface of the earth gets remodeled. Now, is there any evidence, is there any reason to think that that happens? Frank, there's every reason to think that happens. That explains very nicely the things that we see on, on the surface of our planet. Now, there are all sorts of different variations. Different geologists I know have different variations of this and different models and, and talk about different plates moving in different areas because of the way sediment flows uh, appear, appear to have worked or erosion patterns or mountain building in certain areas. So I don't want to get into the nuances of anybody a particular model because you've got to understand everything we're talking about here is a model. I mean, we don't have enough information about the pre-flood world to be definitive about these things. We only have the world as we see today, and we're trying to build, you know, what could have been models. We're not in any way denying the Word of God. We're just trying to fill in some blanks to help us understand what we see. So that's the basic model. The great fountains of the deep break open. These plates start pushing apart. Well, Tommy, is there any reason to believe that? Well, frankly, look at those rock layers. I can explain those rock layers. I don't need millions of years. All needs the history and the Word of God. You can um, go to certain areas. I mean, there, there, there's a coal mine in Tennessee where a couple of these things are, are really uh, evident. You see there are places around the world. They're called polystrate fossils. So you have a tree trunk that's 40 feet long, and it's standing vertical. Like this, through any number of layers. What the, what the secular geologists would maybe say, 175, 200 million years of rock layers. Now, is a tree trunk going to stand up exposed for 150 million years? What's the chance of that? Zero, right? That tree trunk would have to have been buried rapidly. My favorite example is Mount Everest. Now, how tall is Mount Everest? So roughly 29,000. And that's more than two miles, right? So the thing is, we talk about the entire earth being covered. And I said there was enough water to cover the earth for a surface to a level about two miles. So I would argue that the surface of the earth is different today. I would argue that the pre-flood world, Mount Everest wasn't there. That the topography was more moderate. So when you had the flood, everything was covered. And as these plates start getting pushed apart, things start banging together. Mountain ranges get pushed up. Now, is there any reason to believe that? I think there's every reason to believe that. I mean, if you go up on the slopes of Mount Everest and you dig down in the ground, what do you find? What kind of fossils? Marine fossils, fish fossils, fossils of sea creatures. Now, how do you get sea, fossils of sea creatures on the slopes of Mount Everest? I mean, they flop up there and freeze? How'd that work? Well, a couple of years ago, I was going down one of the Grand Canyon trips, and I was, there was a geologist with us, and he was telling me about the millions of years, and I was listening to him telling me my Bible wasn't true, and I was trying to be patient, I was trying to witness to him, and it wasn't getting anywhere, because millions of years, millions of years, millions of years. So one night, we're sitting around the campfire after we ate, and we're talking about it, and I said, okay, I've listened to you tell me about the millions of years, but I got several questions. I said, I don't really understand, you know, 
how you think your model explains everything. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, what about Mount Everest? He said, what about it? I said, well, what about the marine fossils on Mount Everest? He said, well, they're there. What's your question? I said, how'd they get there? I'll never forget his answer. When I asked him, how, well, what about the, the, the marine fossils on Mount Everest? You know what he told me? He said, Tommy, it looks like at one time it was underwater. <laughs> I said, you think? See, my model helps us understand that. But see what the second world says, it takes millions of years for things like that to form. Is that really true? On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, located 95 miles south of Seattle, Washington, erupted. The eruption was triggered by an earthquake centered beneath the mountain that measured 5.1 on the Richter scale. The lateral blast swept out the north side of Mount St. Helens at 300 miles per hour, with temperatures as high as 660 degrees Fahrenheit and the power of 24 megatons of thermal energy, it snapped 100-year-old trees like toothpicks and stripped them of their bark. Before the famous eruption at Mount St. Helens, scientists were mostly familiar with slow-acting examples of geologic change. But at Mount St. Helens, geologists watched the Earth's surface change quite rapidly. Icebergs were buried in hot avalanche material. They melted and formed badlands in days. Eruptions on May 18 and June 10 produced fine layers in hours. On June 10, mud flows cut zigzag canyons 100 feet deep in soft sand and mud, complete with perpendicular side canyons. Canyons that are reminiscent of the geography of Grand Canyon, only 40 times smaller and clearly produced within hours. Mud flows over the following decade cut hundreds of feet into solid rock in just days of cutting time. Fallen trees formed a log mat on the surface of Spirit Lake and dropped bark to the bottom of the lake, accumulating up to three feet of bark peat in just a couple years. And vertically floating logs sinking to the bottom of the lake resulted in buried trees in only a decade. Similar to the trees of Yellowstone's fossil forest, which are also buried in volcanic layers. Even though Mount St. Helens is a very small catastrophe compared to the flood or the major catastrophes immediately following the flood, it provides a better clue to what happened in those times than the slow geologic processes which are most commonly seen in the present. Maybe it doesn't take millions of years. And again, you got two options. Either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water caused those rock layers, or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time. See that canyon wall? It obviously took millions of years, right? It took six hours. It's six hours less than a million years. It took about half an hour for that. 
I mean, if there was a global catastrophe, if there, if there was, you know, the great founders of the deep breaking open, the worst cataclysm the world's ever seen, sedimentation on a global cataclysmic, catastrophic scale, burying billions of creatures suddenly in unimaginable amounts of sediment. If you went around the world and dug down in the ground, what would you find? You'd find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. If you go around the world and dig down in the ground, what do you find? You find billions of rock layers buried in rock, buried, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. You find fossils. We can explain the vast majority of what we call the fossil record on the basis of the flood. Not all the fossil record, but the vast majority of it. For example, this is a what? Now, this is how I was taught in high school. This is the process of fossilization I was taught in high school. Fish dies. Sinks to the bottom, slowly gets covered by sediment, becomes a fossil. I remember thinking, how do you get a T-Rex fossil? You know, if a T-Rex has a heart attack and falls over on the prairie or something, how long does it take to slowly bury a T-Rex? So you got a problem. Now, the other thing about this, this example I was given by a teacher in high school is that at the time I had an aquarium. And what happens when your goldfish dies? It goes to the top. Now, out in the real world, what happens to that fish? It rots, it gets scavenged, it goes away. What's the chance of that fish becoming a fossil? Zero. Now, we did at my house some years ago have the opportunity to put this to the test. Because as I mentioned before, I have a wife and three daughters. So I never know what's gone wrong at my house. I just know it's my fault. So anyway, I came home from work one day and there was great crying and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And there was great sorrow because Earl had died. And I was trying to be a good daddy. I was trying to conceal my total and absolute abject joy at the situation because after all, the best kind of cat is a dead cat. But, you know, I, I love my daughters and I, I was trying to be comforting. So I was like the Grinch. I thought up a lie and I thought it up quick. I said, girls, this is what we'll do. How would you like to have a fossil cat? And they went, that sounds pretty cool. How do we do that? And I said, this is what we do. We can have a fossil Earl. We call him Earl the Fossil. We use him as a doorstop. You'll put a Santa hat on him, hang Christmas lights, use him to scare the UPS guy. It'd be really cool to have a fossil cat. Because after all, the best kind of cat is fossil cat. But nonetheless, we put him out in the backyard and put up a sign, scientific experiment progress, do not touch. And we waited to have a fossil cat. Now, I'm a scientist. I know this is going to take some time. I'm patient. I'm thinking, fossil cat, that's pretty cool. You don't have to feed it. Use it as a doorstop. Fossil cat, good. So we get to day nine. And as I remember, the lawn service was no longer mowing that part of my yard. And the neighbors were circulating a petition, which I think my wife signed not once but twice. Nonetheless, I'm on the, I'm on the trail of truth, justice, and the American way. I'm waiting for a fossil cat. So we get to day 20. As I recall, by that time, we had gotten the girls a guinea pig. They'd totally forgotten about Earl, so they didn't even care about this anymore. But at this point, it was my quest. It was my experiment. I wanted a fossil cat. Well, I got to day 38, and this was not looking good at all. I was getting really kind of worried about my fossil cat experiment. I get to day 65. Earl was gone. What happened to Earl? He rotted. He went away. He's gone. So how do you get a fossil? Well, here's a fish having a good day. Here's his good day coming to an end. Here's a pre-fossil. Here's a fossil. 
Now we got a problem. How come this fish got to be a fossil and I didn't get no fossil cat? No way, no how. What's the difference? This fish got buried rapidly. Wow, what event in history could account for billions of creatures being buried rapidly? Wow, where do you turn for that? How about the history in the Word of God? Here's a fish eating another fish. And you got one or two choices. Either this fish was eating the other fish, got choked, had a heart attack, sank to the bottom and slowly got covered by sediment, or something buried this creature suddenly right in the middle of lunch hour. I, do, I can't think of one specific uh, example in the fossil record of a creature that was buried rapidly in the process of giving birth. The fossil record screams rapid burial. You know what accounts for that better than anything else? The flood of Noah's day. When we trust the word of God, we can come to, con- come to correct conclusions. Because what we see in God's world really does agree with what we read in God's word. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer.